0: Welcome back to the Clayton Castle Podcast. I am so excited for this next guest. He is a great friend of mine uh, from my days at Local 12. He is the evening executive producer. He is the president of the Cincinnati Contemporary Jazz Orchestra, among other things. And again, he's a great friend of mine. He is a lifelong diehard Reds fan. I am so excited to welcome my next guest, Doug Lillibridge. Doug, thank you for joining me.
1: Uh, Thanks for asking. (laughs) <laughs> so we'll, we'll see what happens <laughs>
0: and i apologize for scheduling this in the middle of a reds game too it's,
1: it's all right you're forgiven
0: but I, I i sported my reds jersey for this interview just for you so this is the one of those throwback ones that they did a couple of years ago i think this is from uh, 1995 so i
1: sport for obvious reasons a los rojos jersey
0: Oh yes, you do. Every time yes. I post about the Reds or you know say something about the Reds, you always comment "Viva los Rojos," which means yes. obviously, go Reds. Yeah. Yes. Uh, technically go the Reds, but anyway. So I'm. Just, thank you again for joining me. I want to start. The reason I had you on is because you have such a great story, your life story. Um, not just as a journalist, but there's a recovery story in there. There's a jazz story. There's kind of like everything. that you want to see in a cultured person (laughs) um and so i want to start at the beginning you actually went to uh milford high school right yeah um so what was it like growing up in milford you said you grew up in other places as well what was uh kid doug
1: like well kid kid doug actually you brought up the jazz thing kid doug was that was where my love of Music really took off. I we I was born in Kishock, and then we moved to Lancaster, and then we finally moved to Milford. And and uh, you know I I was already playing the saxophone, but when I got here, um, I hooked up with a teacher, Herbie Aaronoff. God love Herbie. He's he's still um, he's still kicking. Um, he's pushing eighty, um, and he's part of the Blue West Big Band. But he he became my teacher. And, um, a love of jazz was born and, uh, it has been, it's, it's huge. It's a big part of my life, probably, probably unmanageably big at times, but it's, um, you know, I have a, I have, I have like 2,500 CDs it's, uh, and and like all, but maybe 10 of them are jazz. Um, I, I've. You know, like you said, I, I'm president of the Contemporary Jazz Orchestra. I mean, all of this stuff. And I, what, what it was like in Milford at the time is the band was really good. I mean, really good. We took top honors. Marching Band took top honors in competitions. The Concert Band took top honors, and the Jazz Band did too. And um, it just became, it was so much fun. It was so much fun and became a, a really big part of my life that carried on into college. And then I, you know, I worked, but I played sax professionally on the side all the way up until uh, I was in my late 20s.
0: What kind of values were instilled in you by your family? I know you were really close with your parents. Yes. Um, what kind of values were instilled in you as a kid that kind of helped you throughout your life, through your recovery, through your, your um career in journalism
1: work hard always give uh more than a full day's work for a full day's pay uh be humble don't don't ever think you're smart don't ever think you're uh you know that you're the best at anything because there's always somebody better there's always somebody smarter you know just you know just keep working hard and um that's i mean that those things are you know the bedrock of my values i think is that there's you know um people can outsmart me it happens all the time you'd be hard pressed outwork me and um that's that's a big that's that's a big part of it and, you know um the other stuff uh, you know um be a good citizen, help your neighbor, care about other people, all of those kinds of stuff. Um, and, and you know, some of that stuff, getting back to what happened in high school, I mean, be a part of the team. Don't, you know, don't try to be the center of attention, you know, just um, be a part of the team. And I think I became a leader because of all those things that told me not to try to be a leader, uh-huh. if that makes any sense. Um, even, even in high school, you know, I would, I would lead projects because I wasn't out to take credit for anything. I wanted all of us to, you know, get credit for something succeeding. And, and I think that's, that's carried forward in a lot of ways today in many parts of my life.
0: I think a lot of those traits that you mentioned, being a hard worker, being a good citizen, I think a lot of those that you mentioned are very important in someone who wants to go into the journalism field, the media field. Um, what made you want to, what drove you to want to be a journalist?
1: Well, I wanted to be a jazz musician first, and, uh, and I, I knew what it took to do that between how much practicing it would take and just the overall talent level. When I when I started to look into that and I was exposed to people from other parts of, well, really not the country, but the region who were really good players, I'm like, that guy doesn't try half as hard as me and he's three times better than me. And I just kind of saw the writing on the wall that, that there was there was some club in their bag that I lacked. So I've always been a pretty good writer. People, people told me that when I was just a kid. Just, you know, teachers in school and stuff would always comment on how well I wrote. And I just kept doing that. And, you know, I did, I started writing for newspapers when I was still in high school and getting paid for it. And um, it, all of that, uh, I, I liked working for newspapers because there was no real broadcast outlet when I was, you know, in my later part of high school. And the, and there was, when I got to college, I went to Bowling Green. There was when I got to college, but, um, when I, uh, when I, when I got there, you could work on the paper, but it took, you know, the, the people who worked in broadcasting was a select thing. It had to be more of an upperclassman. So I started working at the paper until I could get a shot at the radio station. And um, as far as why, I like the, uh, not just not just because of, of being able to write, but I like to tell a story. And the part about broadcasting that was always, you know, uh, appealing to me. People told me I had a good voice and I'm like, you know, I hate hearing myself, but other people don't seem to. So, okay, I can, I can accept that. And, um, when I was working for newspapers, I would bust my butt getting a story and getting all these details and finding out all of this information that would be printed the next day. Meanwhile, somebody in radio or TV would cover the same story find out half as much but nobody paid attention to my story because they'd heard it or seen it the night before and that used to tick me off so i'm like well if i can't beat them i'll join them mm-hmm. and that's that's how i wound up putting most of my emphasis at that time in my life mainly in radio i did a little tv in college but um my vision's not that great i can't read a teleprompter So, um, well, I, I can, but not very well. And, uh, and so I, I ended up, I ended up doing the, uh, going the route of, uh, radio for a long, 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 long time. And then I got into TV later behind the scenes.
0: So you went to Bowling Green, which is a, um, fertile ground, a fertile ground for journalists, obviously. The great, uh, Dwayne Pullman also went to
1: careful with with that. Great. He doesn't doesn't need to hear that crap.
0: I know. We don't need to boost his ego anymore.
1: Well, and he was an (laughs) underclassman. And I picked on him back then and I still pick on him today.
0: Oh, I was going to ask you, that's my next question. Did you know him in college?
1: Yeah. 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 Um, he was behind me and, um, I graduated in three years. He graduated in five. Um, So Uh, clearly, clearly I was a much more serious student than he was. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, but yeah, I knew him back then and he was always, you know, he was always the one with his hand in the air. He was always the one who, who, you know, wanted to do everything right now instead of waiting his turn. So nothing much has changed. So, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> i really hope he hears this uh so you know um but yeah i knew him back then and uh and then you know you go separate ways and then lo and behold you know i knew of his career over the years but didn't really talk and then he he winds up back in our newsroom what, about five years ago now yeah
0: well and you know it's funny that you pick on duane and he, he probably he doesn't probably pick on you. He does too. And he tries. <laughs> that's why I love you both. Cause you guys, even when I left local 12, um, I both, I consider you both mentors of mine, not just in the journalism field, but really in life, you know, you and I talked a lot about the Mount, Mount Washington, for those who don't know, cause you live in Mount Washington. <laughs> I lived in Mount Washington, my entire life until about a month ago. And, um, so, yeah, the, I, I can't wait to just talk to Dwayne about this because he is going to be like, well, I'm going to listen. And then he's going to be like, well, I want to get on to, t- to pick on Doug. So anyway, <laughs>
1: <laughs> so your early journalism. He can't, career, land, he can't land a punch on me.
0: <laughs> so you worked in newspaper, you worked in radio, you worked in TV. Um, I'm not going to ask you which one's best because obviously you still work in TV. But yeah.
1: what are so I'll answer it. Go ahead and ask me. All
0: right. Which one is radio, the,
1: radio is the most fun. Yeah, it is the most fun because you can create so much more just by yourself without relying on other people, without all of the there's just so much more freedom in radio. Uh It's a blast. The pay is terrible. It is terrible. I mean, there's not too many businesses where you can go across the street and double your pay. Right. But that's what happened to me in 1998. So, you know, I had been doing TV on the side and uh, and then went into it full time. Although I when I say on the side, um, I did so much part time TV work that it was a full time part time job um, that started in 94. But yeah, in, um, when I when I decided to go TV and only and only work one job. I doubled my pay. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's sad in a lot of ways. But
0: But no, my, my answer is exactly the same. Cause I, like you, I worked in newspaper very early in my career. I worked at a radio station in college and, I'm but kind of sort of back in the radio now with tri-state football on um, ESPN, 1530 and Fox sports, you know, on Friday nights. And obviously I worked in TV for, you know, five or six years of my, my media career, but radio is always my favorite. I always told people, I also have the face for radio, but (laughs) but, um, like you said, there's just, I feel like there's so much more uh, to do. You can do with radio, especially in storytelling, because in TV, I love TV as well because you get the visuals of it, but you have to kind of condense your story into you know, a minute and a half, two minutes, unless you're Dwayne Pullman, you get five minutes. But um, whereas with radio and to an extent newspapers as well, um, you can kind of really tell a full picture story.
1: Yeah, and and all stories are on the table in radio. There are mm-hmm. some stories that we simply can't do, at least you know, in a daily turn basis. On television because we simply don't have the visuals to support them. Right. And and that's a shame. And we run into that dilemma a lot and we try to brainstorm ways to do it. But sometimes there's just there's just no way without making it boring to look at.
0: Mm-hmm. And we're going to we're going to talk more about journalism later. Um, but I also want to get into we've kind of touched on it a couple of times about your recovery. You um, You were. Or I guess technically the term is technically still you are an alcoholic still, but you're recovering. I don't, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm not, I, the...
1: I am. I am a recovering addict. Right. And the reason I say addict and not alcoholic is because I could be addicted to anything True. that is mind or mood altering. So, um, that's, that's a fact that's Can just, you? that's just part of my story. Right.
0: Um, do you mind talking a little bit about what that time was like when you were an addict, why you were an addict? Um, were there certain pressures in your life that contributed to it?
1: I mean, they didn't they didn't seem like like um, oh my God, this my my situation wasn't that that oh my god, the stress is so bad, I gotta I gotta drink or whatever. It, it, that's not my story. Um my story is um Basically, uh, I went to a, I, I, now that I look back on it, um, I was probably an alcoholic first. I was, I was generally near the last to leave a party. I never left any wine or beer in the glass. Um, and, um, I had gotten into the habit of, you know, I'll get home from work and I'll have a drink. And I was, in my mind, I was having a drink. And often it was more than a drink or more than a glass of wine or more than a beer. But in my mind, I'd had one when I'd really had much more than that. And, um, but I'd be fine the next day. I, you know, I didn't, you know, I wouldn't be, over I go to work I'd be fine and but I was I was already in that kind of a cycle and President's Day weekend 2001 um, a friend um, introduced me to cocaine and uh, you know it was it was really something and he was a guy with a good job and a good situation. And he was doing it, and and he wasn't, you know, hadn't lost everything or anything like that. So I thought, to, I thought to myself, well, you know, maybe all that stuff Nancy Reagan's been saying all these years is not, uh, you know, is for weaker people or whatever kind of nonsense you tell yourself. And had it stopped then, it would have just pretty much been that. But there'd be a phone call again in a couple weeks. Hey, do you want to? And I'd say yes. And then it became more frequent and more frequent and more frequent and more frequent. And then it becomes that thing that you can't stop. I don't know, they they show you things in rehab, where uh, uh, it shows brain what what happens to brain activity, when you introduce cocaine into the brain, and it's like, it shows like a healthy brain. And then um, cocaine is introduced to the brain, and brain activity stops in this one part of the brain, and that is the brain that controls reasoning.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: People say, "Just say no." At that point, you don't know there's such a word as no. Right. All you know is full steam ahead, and it you know it creates. That what I did creates a, uh, uh, a mental withdrawal, you know, opiates, which were never my thing, opiates, um, create a physical withdrawal. And, you know, I've seen people and helped many, 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 many people through those. Um, but, but cocaine creates a mental withdrawal. You think you need it. You don't, but you think you do. And, uh, and because of that, you know, <laughs> You make some very poor decisions and what happened with me was so i finally stopped that after you know 16 18 months of hell and um and lost everything you know uh and uh when i was able to drink again um i found that it went to the same place theoretically um I didn't know how to slow down. I drank at a prodigious level that I hadn't drank before. And I was awfully depressed about everything that I'd lost. And that led to it. And, you know, they diagnosed me with clinical depression and and all of this stuff, which I'm not sure how much of that I buy because they said this is a little bit off the track off the topic, but they diagnosed me with clinical depression. And they said, your brain chemistry is too screwed up. We're not going to give you anything for it. Come back in six months. I came back in six months and she went through these questions. She says, you no longer suffer from clinical depression. And I said, is that something you get over in six months? And she said, no. And I said, then which time were you wrong? And, uh, yeah. i didn't pay her <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh out the door i went but the only thing that had changed in those six months is that i i'd I'd, uh, I'd become part of a 12-step program and i took it very 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 seriously and so you know um i'm not going to get religious on you because i'm not that religious of a guy i'm a pretty spiritual cat but the uh but that is the number one thing that had changed is that I developed a relationship with a higher power, mm-hmm. and uh, and that you know the tentacles from that go to all facets of life.
0: Was there? So you said you have been sober for a little over eighteen years. You know the you know the exact the exact time as we
1: speak here today on the twenty second of August. Eighteen years, two months, and eighteen days.
0: Was there a, not that I'm counting? can. <laughs> was there a specific moment a specific event that happened that made you realize hey I need to I need to get sober I need to get clean was there a an event that happened what was the kind of turning point for you
1: well I had had nine months under my belt and I got in a fight with my dad and uh, I had to go to a drunk driving class um in Newport and I had to take the bus and I I was mad at my dad and and I was living in their basement because I had been reduced I'd lost my house and was living in their basement and you know had to move back from DC to Cincinnati and um we got in a fight and um when I I would go I would take the bus eventually to Newport there's a lot of long When you're taking it from Eastgate, it takes a while to get there with the transfers and everything. But after class, I would go back downtown and I'd have two hours to kill before there was another bus back to to, uh, Eastgate. And uh, I was angry and I said to myself, I still had a couple bucks in my pocket. I said, I'm going to go for a walk up up Ray Street, and this is Ray Street in 2003, not anything like it looks like today. And um, I said, I'm going to take a walk up Ray Street and um, whatever happens, happens. And uh, sure enough, somebody offered me a joke and I said yes. And um, ended up having to call them at about two th- no, 3 30 in the morning, 3 30, 4 o'clock in the morning, and say, Would you please come get me? Um, I was at basically a flop house that they've torn down now that was on Main Street. Um and uh they came and got me and they had told me if I screwed up again, I was out. And uh, but they didn't kick me out. And a week later, I, I went, I had the same deal. I had to go to drunk class again. He got in an argument with me again. It was the exact same set of circumstances as a week before. And essentially exactly the same thing happened. Only this time I said, uh, I, I called them and said I was, I was with friends and (laughs) And, uh, and that I would find my way home. Don't worry about it. And, uh, of course, they did worry about it. And uh, finding my way home amounted to me. First, I thought, well, I'm out of money. Um, I'm feeling a little twitchy because I've just used some cocaine. Uh, I know what I'll do. I'll go to hotel lobbies and act like I'm waiting for someone because the first bus wouldn't run until 6.30 in the morning.
2: Uh
1: So I went to the Millennium and sat on the couch and kind of dozed off a little bit, and they woke me up and kicked me out. And I went across the street to the Hyatt, and I did the same thing. And after a while, they kicked me out. So then I went down to Fountain Square, and I went into the Westin, and I did the same thing. And this, this sweet security guard, she wakes me up, and she goes, Honey, you know we all talk to each other, right? <laughs> so, so there's a hotel security guard network I've come to find. And so I'm like, fine. Well, I don't have any money, but I gotta get on the bus.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: All I need is 65 cents. Here I am down on government square, trying to panhandle. Now I'm wearing like a like a polo shirt, right? there are bag ladies raking it in and i got people looking at me and and, you know god knows how bad i must have looked having been up all night and everything and i was i weighed a lot less than i do now uh and uh you know they would just um people would just ignore me so i ended up getting on getting on the bus without any money and um I fell asleep. The bus drove past my stop. I woke up somewhere down 125 um, by what used to be Joe Kid Dodge. And I just pulled the cord and said, let me out. And he said, where's your money? I said, pal, I said, I just had the worst, one of the worst nights of my life. Um, I'll pay you when I see you or call a cop. I don't really care at this point. (laughs) And he said, I believe you and let me off the bus. And I walked back, found the phone and called mom and dad and said, will you come pick me up? And I was sure that was it, that I'd be living in a box next or at the drop-in center or something. They didn't do that. But what did happen was the week before I'd gone to a 12-step meeting. And uh, it was the first time I took it seriously. I'd been to one before, but I never took it seriously. I thought I was taking it seriously then. They gave me this book. I read this book. I read it cover to cover. I read it in about a day. Um, I thought I was really, really smart. And then, of course, I relapsed. So I uh, so the next day I went back to that same meeting. I told them they were all liars because I read their damn book and I still got (laughs) hot. And uh, and I said, don't hug me because, you know, I don't want any of your any of your B.S., you know, I'm just here because I got to be here. And I was the angriest man in the universe. And they all, one by one, got up and hugged me and told me to keep coming back. And um damn it. I, I and that's what I've been doing ever since that night of of that bus ride. And that long night, that was the last time I got high. but the real reason I'm stuck with it. Um, came about a week later i uh i had met the guy who eventually became my sponsor um a few days later and i found myself getting honest with him and i hadn't gotten honest with anybody in forever and um and i don't know why to this day well i do know why thank you god but at the time i had no idea why And two days later, I had the same scenario, except dad didn't yell at me this time, but I had to go downtown and I had this time to kill. And I, uh, I took the, uh, and I had money, money to pay my lawyer whose office was on Ray street. Uh And I went to Ray street and I paid my lawyer and uh, all these people had given me, look, if you think you're going to go get high, call us first. And I had to like, first of all, scope out which payphones still worked, because this is, I didn't have a cell phone back then. And there were still some payphones downtown, but some of them didn't work. And I went and I and I paid the lawyer. And I was walking out of there, and I could have turned left and gotten high because I still had some money. Um, or I could turn right, wait for the bus, and be safe. And I felt like all of those people in that meeting were telling me I was gonna be okay. And I turned right and it was like, it was like it was happening without my permission. I just walked to government square and I sat my butt down and I waited Mm -hmm. for the bus. And and the two hour or whatever it would have been at that point, wait, felt like it was 10 minutes that day. And um, I got on the bus and I got home safe and I called that guy who spent quite a few hours talking to me a couple of days before, and I said he he assumed because I was calling him that I had I was in trouble, and I told him no I've made it home safe, and I said so uh, he hates this story because I I said I said so all of this happened so you're my sponsor, and he's like well first of all you have to ask me. Second of all, I need to pray about it, call my sponsor, talk about it some. I said, that's fine. You do whatever the hell you think you have to do, but you're my sponsor. And he's like, again, I need to do this and all this stuff. And I said, look, man, I haven't in the last couple years had money and opportunity and not gotten high. Today that happened. You're the reason why you're my sponsor. And he said, OK, I've only had one sponsor and he and I are so close we can finish each other's sentences um we know each other so well um i'm a uh, minister with the universal life church by the way and uh, i actually uh uh what do you call it Uh, married him yeah yeah i'm i Yeah. You say I married him. That sounds like I married him him and his wife. wife. Yeah. Um, I presided over their marriage ceremony. That's it. Something like that. Right. Um, Yeah. And that was, that was just before the pandemic happened. So in a nutshell, so to speak, um, that's kind of what happened.
0: So you have a lot of passions and interests, you know, we've talked about the reds, the the jazz. You talked, you talked about a higher power. What influences you to keep going? What, what kind of keeps you grounded in your sobriety?
1: Well, um, I mean, it's a, it's a 12 step program. So you constantly, you know, you work those steps and, and part of working those steps is to look in the mirror mm-hmm. and, and to, you know, assess where you're at and to know that, you know, I'm not perfect. And every day is, Another chance to be a better person than you were the day before, and and so I really look at life like that. Yeah. Um, and you know, my I feel like my connection to my higher power is is pretty strong. <clears throat> and so, you know, we talk a lot, and my concept of prayer is probably different than a lot of folks. But I talk to my higher power the way I'm talking to you. Uh-huh. Sometimes I cuss, and sometimes I get angry. And, and, and as far as I'm concerned, my higher power understands because he understands me. And, um, and I, um, so that's a big part of what keeps me grounded, but I also, I sponsor some guys, um, quite a few guys, a Baker's dozen, and most of them don't require a lot of attention because they've been with me for many, many years, but, but even the rookies, you know. I need to keep doing what I do and, and keep trying and striving and reaching because I need to set an example for them. Right. I don't want them to put me on a pedestal by any means, God, no, but I, I want them to understand that this doesn't just stop, you don't get some magic amount of time clean and then put your feet up because i've seen that happen to people and some of those people are no longer with us Mm. you know it's so it's um it's a marathon yeah but it's a good marathon i mean later tonight i'm going to go to a meeting and and um every meeting is a chance to help someone or be helped yeah and i don't know which way it's going to go going in you know you go and you you listen and maybe you Maybe you, maybe you share something, maybe you don't but, but that's the way, that's the way the process works and I always feel better for having gone always even if you know not every meeting is the gold standard. sometimes they're dull. sometimes they're you know they're everything under the sun. but I can get something out of every everyone if I try. So I try.
0: Well, I want to, first of all, before we move on, I want to say thank you for telling me that, telling that story. Um, I really hope that, you know, once this episode gets released and people hear that, um, that can serve as an inspiration for others who may need, who may want to seek help or know someone who needs to seek help. Um, So I just want to say thank you for being so honest and open with your own um, recovery story. Now we're going to move on to the big, the big uh, journalism topic. Uh, media topic so as i stated in your intro you are the evening executive producer at local 12 here in cincinnati uh tell us first of all what does an executive producer do
1: well we're responsible for what i'm responsible for what goes on the air at 10 and 11 um and and also um to to a degree but not a small degree what what goes online as well um that's my that's my primary responsibility when i say responsible for it each of those shows has a producer um but you know i'm responsible for making sure that they don't get something wrong or uh, you know just any sort of other kind of production errors that can happen Um, i oversee that i'm the one who primarily has to work with the reporters Uh on their, (laughs) on their stories, on their packages. uh, And, uh, you know, really how they develop the story they're trying to tell. Um, I feel like I'm leaving something out, but that, that is kind of it. I mean, it's the general, it's the general responsibility for it. Everybody, almost everybody I work with, um, as far as producers or reporters is at least 20 years younger than me. And so, um, not everybody, but almost everybody, (laughs) excuse me. And, um, and so, you know, some of what I look for is, you know, or some of what I bring to the table is the experience of, of having been around, you know, um, did we ask that extra question? Did we, did we get that extra thing? Did we did we do the thing that separates us from the rest by finding out the detail or having the maturity of judgment to say, well, they can't just say that. There's more to it than that. If you don't have that, call them back and get that. I'm that guy who, right. um, because I, I think a healthy cynicism is part of every good journalism. Uh A journalist. And uh, and so, you know, I have to be that guy for, you know, some people I work with who aren't as naturally cynical as I am. You know, I got I mean, I got into journalism because um, I wanted to be the guy who held people's feet to the fire. I wanted to be the guy to ask the question. I wanted to be the guy who found out stuff before everybody else did. And then I got to go tell them, Uh you know, um, I mean. This goes way back. In the summer of what would have been, uh, I think, either between second and third grade or third grade and fourth grade. um, while the other kids were out playing baseball. I was inside watching the Watergate hearings, Uh you know, dad would come home from work (laughs) and I would tell him all about the tapes and the break-in and the money changing hands. And he would look at me like you're a freak,
2: you know? (laughs) Yeah.
1: But, but, you know, if you grew up when I grew up, you wanted to be Woodward and Bernstein, you know, I mean, they were, they were idols of anybody in a journalism school in the eighties. So, so, yeah, the, you know, so when I was a reporter, I mean, every story I looked at, I looked at as though it was potentially an investigative story. Uh-huh. Now, that word has taken on a, a whole other meaning in today's world. Investigative journalism today is, is uh, you know, dredging up years worth of records and, things that take months and months on end and all that kind of stuff. Um, When I was doing it, it was just digging below the surface. Right. Probably getting under some politician's skin. There are, you know, there are some politicians back when I was a reporter in Fort Wayne, Indiana, who very much didn't like me um, because I was annoying. I was, they would, they would, you know, call a news conference to show off a ribbon cutting at some plaza someplace. And I was there to ask them about why is the police chief under investigation? And that used to tick them off, but Uh too bad, you know?
0: Well, it's it's so funny that you bring up childhood because I was that child as well. I would come home and instead of, you know, going out with my friends or whatever, I would come home and watch the news. And, you know, I was actually when I first, when I was growing up, I used to be terrified to an extent, still am terrified of thunderstorms, but that interest made me want to be actually a meteorologist. And so Uh I, I would like take these eight and a half by 11 pieces, you know, like printer paper and like draw maps with, you know, the rain here. And I would do a weather forecast for my parents. You know, it's kind of funny that you said that about your childhood. One thing that I kind of saw you as when I worked at 12 was not just a manager, but I kind of saw you as a coach, like a coach of journalism. Cause I, from where I sat, you have a little office kind of like on the corner of the newsroom. And I remember reporters would come in and they would sit down with you and you would say those that you would ask them those questions. Like what question are we missing here? What, you know, what angle can we take with this story or, you know, kind of the different ways to look at a story do you, would, is that a fair assessment of what you do would you say that you're a coach to some of these reporters yeah
1: yeah I, I i'd like to think i'm a coach to anybody you know i i feel like i've got enough experience to offer some kind of for lack of a better word coaching to anybody whether it's whether it's a producer a reporter an anchor uh a uh somebody on the assignment desk even the folks in digital
2: because
1: uh-huh you know, in some way, shape, or form, I've done all those jobs. I wasn't an anchor on TV, but I was an anchor for a long time on radio. So, you know, I, I know what it's like to be on the air. Uh, I, I know what it's like to report a story. I know I have this, um, you know, I used to, when I was in, when I, one of my first jobs in radio, um, the, um, the news director put up this sign. It looked like one of those landscape things that has like these inspirational sayings on it. Only um, one of them said, who gas, who GAS, and that meant who gives a shit. And the other one said, uh, what the blank does it mean? What Which we interpreted to say, what the fuck does it mean? And And, the, and those were always up there but I, I've always thought about that because when I those things and many other similar questions, because when I'm it's not enough that you tell me what you've reported, right? You have to make me give a shit. Mm-hmm. And um, and so uh, there's ways to do that with a variety of subjects. It's it's whether or not you you achieve that goal. And, uh, you know, I'm always challenging, you know, the producers first. How do you get me interested in your show? And then each story within your show, how do you make me care? And um, and for the reporters, don't just go out and repeat to me what other people told you. Make it a story. Yeah. You know, tell me a story, engage me Um, and challenging them to do that is part of my job. And I know for a fact that every single reporter I have ever worked with as a manager, at some point or another, I couldn't stand me for that very reason. But I'd like to think that some of them anyway, knows, knew that I was probably right, but they were on deadline and it made their day longer. Uh (laughs) And so therefore, you know, at that moment, I was public enemy number one, but that's the way it goes. Right. You know.
0: Well, and I think another thing that you're really good at, at your job, and this isn't a Doug love fest, but I'm just kind of trying to give the listener a picture of what you do, because again, you're behind the scenes. You're not on air. People, the general public may not know who Doug Lillabridge is um, until obviously this podcast drops.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> then I'll be a household name.
0: Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But I think another thing that you're great at is, you know, I was in the journalism business for like five years and saw a lot of huge kind of stories, crises go on in the community. You know, I was here for Harambe. I was up in Dayton during the tornadoes and the shootings. And there were, you know, a lot of big stories that I got to cover in five years. But not a lot, a lot of times the managers or people in the newsroom didn't know how to kind of handle the situation. One of the most, it's going to be kind of weird sounding, but the most comfortable I felt during a a crisis situation was when you were at the helm and that was the night, do you remember the night um, Bill Brewer died, the Claremont County Sheriff? Yeah. You had come in, you weren't that was on a weekend you had come in for something completely unrelated i think you forgot something in your office
1: or no i i was i that night i had just gone to a bearcats game oh that's what it was i yeah. drove and i left my car in the parking lot mm-hmm. and i was on call that weekend yeah and i uh and then jillian was on the desk
0: and i was and on I, digital
1: and i called in um just to say thinking that i she's going to say everything's fine and i'm going to go home and go to bed yeah and i uh she she said hold on i think i got something and i had just turned on the highland avenue (laughs) and i hear them say officer down through the scanner through her phone right and i did a U turn on highland avenue and i came back in and i worked until holy moly i think one or two the next afternoon
0: yeah i was Um, i remember because that happened like at 11 o'clock, like maybe 10 or 11 at night. And I was supposed yeah. to home at 1130 or midnight Yeah, and you came in and you, but what I liked is you had control of the situation. You knew exactly who was doing what, who was going to go, where, how long they were going to be. And um, that's what I really admire about what you do is you kind of keep this calm persona during a crisis. Whereas, um, you know, some, some, some managers don't do that, you know, just to be, to be honest. And, I would look for your direction. You gave me clear directions, you know, do this, put this on the web, put this on social. And, um, what do you, I don't want to say do you thrive, but where does that skill come from? Cause you have to learn well, to stay calm during those kinds of situations. I'll tell,
1: you, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a quick story about that, that, that might be, you know, I don't know. might be telling, it might be sad. Um, so my first real ongoing continuing coverage situation that I found myself in was in uh, it was uh, in nineteen I guess it would have been January or February of ninety one when the first Gulf War started mm-hmm. and I was at NBC radio and uh, when the when the uh, missiles started going off, I was at a bar. And I saw that the news was on at a time when the news wasn't supposed to be on because the sound was off on the TV. And I looked up and I said to the bartender, I said, turn that up. And then when I realized what it was, I went to work. Mm-hmm. And my, I normally worked uh, at that time, 3 a.m. to 11 a.m., producing a morning news magazine show. And I went to work and I said, um, they said, you need to go home and sleep because you're going to have to be here for a long day tomorrow. And I said, I want to be here. And so I stayed there that night and watched how they did things Mm -hmm. because I had only been working for them for a little for about a year and a half. I got there in July of 89 and uh, and I wanted to know how they did what they did when you were essentially working without a net. Right. No script, no nothing. And we were on the air wall to wall. And then so we did our regular morning show. And, and then after that, everybody took turns. You would each producer would be in charge of continuing coverage for three, four hours at a time. And then someone would relieve you and so forth. And and it just went on and on and on like that for days. Well, fast forward. I'm in Washington when 9-11 happens uh, and we were on the air because it happened in Washington. Right. You know, we couldn't just go to network. We were on the air, too, round the clock for a week. And um, I remember, and um, I was also uh, teaching at uh, Howard University at the time. I was an adjunct. And um, one of my former students, because we took turns just on TV, just like I had many, many, many times for many big stories when I was in radio. And um, you would sit there and... Because we were, we were an NBC owned and operated station. Um, you know, we had access to all kinds of stuff that a regular station probably didn't have access to network correspondents, feeds of news conferences, you know, in in New York, in DC, in Pennsylvania, um, wherever, wherever anything was happening. And it was my job to just tell the anchors to throw to this. We're going to go to this now. This is coming up. Tell people this is coming up in 10 minutes, that kind of stuff, and just try to keep the train on the track with everything that was happening. And at one point, my remote coordinator, who had been a student of mine just a couple of years before, uh, she looked over at me and she goes, why aren't you more freaked out by this? And offhandedly, and I regret that I said that, said this, but I said, it's just like the Gulf War, which was the truth, Mm-hmm. but is pathetic and i don't know what the hell that says about me but but to think that i could be in a tragic situation like that my best friend or my, not my best friend my next door neighbor where i lived in Alexandria, my next door neighbor was killed at the pentagon oh. and um but it was like we just have to do this right now we have to stay focused uh-huh. we have to do this and there is a There's a thing that comes from that. Um, You know, I talked to some counselors and stuff about it when I was when I was in D.C. because NBC brought people in here. They're they're here if you want to talk to them, because I'm like, what's wrong with me? Why am I? Why am I not? Why am I not feeling it? That was what I thought. And They said, it's not that you're not feeling it. It's that you put it in a drawer because you have this this big thing that you have to do. You will feel it. It will happen. And it will happen at a time without your permission. And sure uh-huh. enough, they were right. I mean, it would hit me. And I've gone through, it's not the same thing, but I mean, it's kind of like the grief you go through. I lost my parents at the end of last year. And, um, you know, that hits you at weird times. You know, I, a couple of weeks ago, I was in, in a Kroger store I had that I used to go to to get them stuff because they were on lockdown and I hadn't been in there since they passed away. And I find myself just overwhelmed with stuff. You know, it's the same kind of thing. You, you, you put stuff in a drawer and then it shows up without permission. So, um, I don't know if I so much keep it together, like you put it, but that makes it sound like I'm, I don't know, somehow tough or, more cool headed what i you know what i'm doing is just worrying about the next thing right you know and maybe the thing after that but i'm trying not to worry about things 10 things from now because that will screw up the thing that's happening right now Uh if that makes any sense
0: no and it definitely does because you know, I went through a lot after the Dayton shooting. I, you know, I was in Dayton when that happened. That was the day after I think there was a shooting in El Paso the day before. Yeah, so there had been mass shootings all over. But you never really feel a mass shooting until it happens where you are, like in your backyard. um, in that in that case, it was the Oregon district, which I had been to before and have been to since. And, but you know, when you're in a newsroom, you're solely focused on what you are doing. So for me, yeah. I was getting things on the web. I was getting, I was making sure these uh, news conferences were being strained. I was doing this, this, and that, when was not able to process what was actually going on because yes, I'm a journalist, but I'm also a human being and I'm going to feel these things, but you can't feel those in those moments. And that's kind of what I was getting at with you was. You know, you were really good at keeping calm during that. And because of that, I was able to feel calm. You know, you're only as calm as your leader. That's kind of how I, you know, view being in a journalism newsroom. And you really helped me get through that because I don't, I don't know if you know, but my dad's a cop. Yeah. And so, like, I thought that was going to suck a lot. Like, that night was going to suck a lot more than it actually did. I mean, I still felt for, like, obviously, Detective Brewer's family and all that but um being able to process that kind of in the moment but kind of not um because of your cool demeanor you weren't freaking out you were not saying oh my gosh like what's happening but um you you have very what i'm saying is you have very good crisis management skills
1: well you one of the things you know i've been doing this for 41 and a half years mm-hmm. and you learn things during that time. And I've had good teachers and bad teachers. And you learn what not to do from the bad teachers. Yeah. And you learn what to do from the good ones. Mm-hmm. And I was blessed to have the good ones that I had. Because, you know, I saw what happened when the bad ones grabbed the wheel. Right. And, and, and I was, you know, at that night, in particular, it was my responsibility. You know, it was on my shoulders. If, if, if I was one of those guys that runs around like their hair's on fire, nothing's going to happen the way it needs to happen, you know, for the benefit of the audience.
0: Well, and I I think what a lot of people don't know about that particular night was not only were you worried about the content that we were getting, but you're also worried about the safety of our reporters because that night I remember, um, I forgot the shooter's name off the top of my head, but he was shooting out the window and we had, we had reporters there. So I remember, you know, us trying to say, you know, you stay close, but stay kind of away, stay out of sight. Um, So there was a lot more on your plate than just what we put on TV.
1: Well, they, we had gotten there. We had gotten there before it got as bad as it got. and. we were too close when we, uh, yeah. at one point and Brad Underwood was the reporter who was there. And, and, uh, um, I remember Brad calling me and telling me they're telling us we need to move, but it's dangerous for dangerous for us to move because anytime we stick our heads up, you know, we're a target. And, uh, you know, I'm like, look, you, you got to do what you can do for you. If the cops will help you be safe because they're the ones who are telling them you're too close.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, um, if you, you know, you have to, you have to do what you can do. Um, but your safety is, is paramount. And, um, you know, I can't from a distance tell anybody what they have to do because I can't see what they see or hear what they hear know what they know but um but he uh they managed to find a way to get out of harm's way Mm -hmm. into a safer position whatever it took and i said i said look if that means that i lose contact for you for a while that's the way it goes you you know you you need to be safe and um and you know he understood that i understood that he and i worked together for all of his time at channel 12 and he's a good guy and, and I care a lot about him. So I don't, I don't want anything bad to happen.
0: Yeah. Well, um, last thing I'll say about that particular night was, you know, you kind of said you learn a lot of things not to do from the bad managers and a lot of good things. Um, you learn a lot of good things from the good managers. And that night I learned a lot about journalism about how to go the right way about a story um, because of your leadership that night. So I would just want to say thank you. Now I want to move on to a, kind of like a more specific question about local journalism and mm-hmm. local TV. You know, you hear, we live in a society where you hear a lot of fake news, a lot of distrust in the media, but a lot of that is put on, you know, the CNNs and the Fox news and the, the net, the networks the national news stations, and organizations but not really a little bit on the local, but not as much. Can you talk a little bit about the role that local journalism plays in informing the public?
1: I mean, we get, we get, we get called fake news and we get called anytime. It it honestly, anytime we're doing a political story, Mm -hmm. it it seems anymore. um, Even if it's local politics, even if, if it has nothing to do with, with Washington, you know, people will roll that out because it's become a popular thing to say. But, um, and I know why the, um, why those cable news outlets get tagged with that. And to a lesser degree, and primarily unfairly, the, the broadcast news networks get, get hit with it too. Um, and you know, not, most of that doesn't apply to us. In local news, um, but I, um, as far as the the role of local news, I mean, we're, I almost said we're the first line of defense. I guess in some ways that's true, but we're the ones who care about where you live.
2: Uh-huh.
1: You know, we're the ones talking about what's going on in your community. You know, we're not. We may cover an issue. That is a national issue, but we will cover it in terms of how it affects you here in the greater Cincinnati area. Um, We're not, we don't have an agenda other than the truth. And um, it's sad, it saddens me that the idea of the truth or what the truth is has been corrupted by this whole notion that, you know, the media has an agenda and they're out to tell this or that thing, you know, like I said, I've been doing this for 41 years and I've done it in small markets, medium markets, big major markets, I've done it at the networks and no one has ever told anybody to slant anything, you know, and uh, we strive for balance, we strive for fairness. But, you know, I'll own the fact that depending upon how you view balance or fairness, there are times when it may seem unfair or unbalanced. Example I'll give is when there's a controversial subject. There are two sides to that story. One side doesn't want you to talk about it at all. And the other side very much does. Well, the side that doesn't want you to talk about it thinks that by refusing to talk to you, you won't do the story. Because if you do, then it's unbalanced and that's not fair and you'll be subject to criticism. So you shouldn't do it at all. Bullshit. No, we will do the story. If you don't want your side told, that's your choice. Uh But but, you know, we're not we're not out to be manipulated that way. Right. And and, um, you know. I've got reporters who work for me who hate it because they'll be the first ones to get blamed. You know, the other side will blame them first because it's their face and their name on the story. But but I'm like, look, we, we can't be used like that. Right. You know, we can't. Um, we give you the opportunity to speak. You don't want to speak, you know. And we, and by giving you the opportunity, I don't mean we just call you and leave you a voicemail. I mean we try hard to to get you in many different ways and many different attempts. Um, but you don't you don't get to keep the news off the air by you know refusing to talk to us. You know that's then you're just trying to to use us and. I ain't having it. Right.
0: And you're you're exactly right. I think journalism just plays such an important role in society. An informed person is a well-rounded person. And so thank you for talking about journalism. Last question, you know, the We're, Reds are playing right now. How do you think it's gonna play out?
1: I think that we will squeak in. We're winning right now, two to one bottom of yes. seven. Uh, um, I think uh I think that we will squeak in.
2: Uh-huh.
1: I think that um, I the I even well, yeah. I think we will squeak in. I think that Mark Slaughter will owe me twenty five dollars because <laughs> we, will, we will we will have achieved eighty two wins or more this season.
0: I don't now, understand I know, Mark Slaughter's hate for the Reds.
1: <laughs> well, the only reason I got into the whole thing with him was that I I believe that his positivity uh overcoming negativity that's right. my whole point he's trying to make a whole different <laughs> argument about it but i don't care um and for those of you who don't know mark slaughter's a photographer over at channel five who i used to work with at channel nine yeah
0: i mean i uh, I, lo- I love mark slaughter he he helped me with my he helped me with my demo reel when i was like first in the business yeah. but yeah. man he is the biggest reds yeah. troll out there <laughs>
1: yeah he hates the reds he hates the bangles he hates anything that everybody else loves. You right, know? Exactly. So, so I, I, I just, I dog it back and say, you know, when you're, when you breathe negativity into the world, negativity comes back at you. If you breathe light in the world, light comes back at you. And, uh, and I just keep telling him, I'm just breathing light, man. Yeah. And and, and he wants to turn her into something else. <laughs> I'm like, sorry, not, uh, not playing your game. But, All right, but, and the- but I'm I'm very optimistic for the Reds. I do believe, you know, um that they'll make the playoffs. Now, you know, what'll happen then is, is the hard part because the most likely scenario is that they'll they'll play either San Francisco or LA in the first round. Hmm. And um
2: that On the road. Will be,
1: yeah, well, yeah, at least to start and and that'll be ugly. Potentially.
0: But it, if they're playing like they've been playing, I really think they can compete with anybody on the field. I I, I wouldn't say like going out to L.A. or going out to San Francisco is a comp, is an automatic L, especially for what we did in San Francisco nine years ago.
1: Well, I think I think the Reds do well or very well against average pitching. Yeah, we we suck against Really, really, really good pitching.
0: But the Do- and- the Dodgers' pitching is not that great right now. I mean, right. Bowers having their, his
1: issues, and yeah, well, but 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 look Kershaw at and- look at their, look at their look at their lineup, man. I mean, those yeah. those are not C plus pitchers right. in their in their rotation. They are they are B plus or better, right? And uh, and so you know, and and the same goes for San Francisco. But we 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 will see. I just, I think that sometimes our expectations get inflated here because of Great American Ballpark. Yeah. And how is how easy it is to go yard here, and and um, and that cuts both ways too. Yeah. <laughs> it's easy for the other guys to do that too, you know. But but I I love my Reds. You All know? right, and what I about have, the Bengals? Over my over my uh, TV right now is the Great Eight. Um, <laughs> yes that that classic photograph from gate four and 76 mm-hmm. and uh and and i love my bengals because yeah. if look when i grew up um your favorite team was the reds and your second favorite team was whoever was playing the dodgers because the, we were in the west yeah. back then. Mm-hmm. and your favorite team is also the bengals and your second favorite team was whoever was playing i call them the great satan but we're talking about that team for, that wears black and yellow. I can't even <laughs> stay, say their name. Um, but that's just the way it is. Yep. And of course, and I know you're a Bearcats guy. Yes, I am. And 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 you know maybe one day Ohio State and UC will be comparable, and maybe that day is this year. I don't. I don't think it is. Um, but I love. I love the Bearcats doing well. You do. I absolutely love the Bearcats doing well. And I pull for them in every game, you know, but Ohio State's always got a shot at the national championship. Yeah. So that's a different, that's a different level, you know? I, I really think. And I, I love Sickle th- and I hope he stays forever. I do too. You know?
0: That's Now that, that's, that's a pipe dream, but I I think this is, I, th- I, th- this is not just a UC fan in me, but it partly is. Um, I really think I think they're going to beat Indiana. I don't think that's really a question. I think they have a good shot at Notre Dame. I, I, I don't, think you too. I don't think that's oh, going to be an automatic loss.
1: No, I don't. I don't either. I don't either. And um, especially when you played Notre Dame early in the season for the last several seasons, it's felt like it's taken them until middle of October to figure out who they are. Mm-hmm. So um, I, uh, yeah, I. You know they're always fighting to get in at the end because they played badly, the first you know at least quarter of the season,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: so you know I'm yeah I I don't I think that UC Notre Dame is going to be a good game and I hate Quitter Coach who coaches the Golden Domes I hate him I don't say his name either we'll just call him Quitter Coach you know <laughs> he shouldn't have lied to all those guys when yeah. he did whenever that was in two thousand is that two thousand nine 2009 then, somewhere yeah. in there. Yeah. Shouldn't have lied to him. I December,
2: know December 24th.
1: He's, he's got, he's got all his excuses mm. for why he had the lie. I don't care. Lying is lying and lying is wrong. And you're a quitter. Yep. So. Well, <laughs> hey,
0: yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At least Mark D'Antonio didn't, you know, he, he yeah. didn't make it a secret that he was about to leave. Right. right. Same with same with Butch Jones, Butch Jones yeah. threw Colorado out there and said, I'm staying at the Bearcats, and then the next day he goes to Tennessee. But neither of those coaches are Brian Kelly. He really took
1: UC to the next level. He did, Um, but but isn't it interesting that everybody thought, "Well, look what Brian Kelly did. Brian Kelly must be some super coach." He's not been, you know, he they've been good, but they haven't been world beaters up in South Bend. And Fickle's taken them fickle who people didn't think would be able to do with them what he's done with them
2: uh-huh. didn't
1: have the name that brian kelly had but what he does have is good recruiting information uh-huh. because you know he can get the guys he can get the guys who would play you know who wouldn't get to play in columbus yeah he can but are every bit good enough to play in columbus and he can get them to come here yeah and i think that's i think that's great i think it's great for because this is a football talent, rich exactly. part of the
0: country. I mean, he recruits Cincinnati really well. And I think I i heard something like when he took, when he first took the job, there was, I think it was like 20% of the UC roster was from the Cincinnati area or something like that. And yeah. now it's, didn't
1: know what he was doing.
0: Oh, Tarville did not know. He, he basically dismantled everything that D'Antonio, Kelly and Bush yeah. Jones did. Yeah. And that was really a shame.
1: Thought, he, thought, he also thought he still had a name. And I'm like, not up here you go. And yeah. you barely have a name down south.
0: Right. You know,
1: it's been I, a long time since Auburn did anything and you were there.
2: Yeah. You know,
0: uh, I, yeah. But what what Fickle does really well is he recruits Cincinnati really well. I I don't know. If, I love Jed DeMuse because he will ch- every time, you know, obviously for people who don't know, Tommy Tuberville is a Senator now from Alabama yeah. and every time Tommy Tuberville will tweet something, Justin Busey will reply to the tweet said, where did Jeremy Larkin, Jeremy Larkin go to high school? <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah. So anyway, Doug, thank you so much for, bet, buddy. for um, being on this podcast. I really appreciate you telling that story. I know it can't be easy telling that story, but, um, but I really appreciate, it. I think it's going to inspire people to want to get help or want to seek help for either themselves or someone they know.
1: I got to be honest with you, um, as you know, as somebody who went through a period in life when when you struggle with the truth um, because the truth is too hurtful. Um, after you come to the realization that telling the truth can save your life. And you get used to that it's not a struggle it's yeah. just my story you know and pe- if people want to judge me for it that, that that's fine and maybe i'd feel differently if i was still in the gutter but um but i mean i'm not high on on a hill either i mean what i did derailed a career that could have me in a quite different situation today but i also think that that hell that i went through um made me a better man and that better man was able to do so many more things that are better for me and my heart and better for the people i've come in contact with and you know it's it's hard to say it's hard to hear sometimes but it's the truth you know at the end of the day the hell i went through turned out to be a blessing yeah
0: well, and I'll never forget. I don't remember if I posted something on Facebook or if someone had told you something, but I remember when I was at Local 12 the first time, because I was there twice, obviously, um, I, rem- I remember I was going through something and I di- I barely knew you. Like I had, ju- I think I had just started or something and you pulled me in the office and said, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'll be fine. I just, you know, I'm going through something and you gave me your card. And you wrote your cell phone number on the back and said, if you ever need anything, give me a call. I'm here for you. And I just want to let you know, like how much that meant to me then, you know, that it really showed that you cared and, um, you know, you're more than an executive producer. You're more than a manager to me. I consider you a really good friend. So thank you for everything. You're welcome, pal. All right. And we'll be right back with the rest of the podcast. (laughs) back to the Clayton Castle podcast. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Doug Lillibridge as much as I did talking to him. He is such a great friend of mine, a great mentor of mine from my days at Local 12. He is the evening executive producer helping the reporters and the producers gather information for the 10 o'clock and the 11 o'clock news there at Local 12. And I really enjoyed hearing his story about his recovery and his road to triumph after addiction so I was really happy that he was able to come on and tell that story. I think if people hear those kind of stories of addiction and then recovery and reaching the heights of recovery, that can really help somebody out. So I was really pleased and excited that Doug was able to do the podcast. Now, on the blog this week, I have an update to our good friend Mike Morosky. He was on last week. Mike Morosky has done quite a few things since he was on the podcast. A lot of things happening down in Cincinnati Public Schools with different COVID 19 mandates. I talk about Mike's role in those mandates. You can check that out. Plus, going off of Doug Lillabridge's interview, We have resources for those who are struggling with mental health and substance abuse. We have um, resources for the National Suicide Hotline, resources to find treatment centers for those struggling with substance abuse, and a substance abuse hotline as well. So if you or someone you know is struggling with mental health or substance abuse or thoughts of suicide, check that out, forward that to somebody if you need to. Um, you know, if I can just save one life through this podcast, it's really worth it. You know, no one deserves to go through life alone. No one deserves to go through life feeling depressed and on drugs and on alcohol. So let's try to work together to bring down those rates of addiction. That's pretty much it for this episode of the podcast. You can find the, the blog at Pod blogspot.com and you can subscribe, follow, do whatever you need to do on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Facebook at the Clayton Castle Podcast. Feel free to share to your best friend, your mom, your dad, your cousin, your aunt, your uncle, your wife, your girlfriend, your fiance, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your great-great-grandparents, whoever might enjoy a good podcast about storytelling. You know, I love telling these stories and I love hearing your feedback and love hearing your stories as well. So thank you. Have a great weekend. And we'll talk to you next week.